Greetings. We hope you enjoy this podcast of a Science for the Public program. If you'd like to see the video of this program, just search the title on our website under the Archives tab at the top of the homepage, www.scienceforthepublic.org. Good evening. I'm Yvonne Stapp for Science for the Public, and I welcome you to tonight's Contemporary Science Issues and Innovations program. Concern is growing about a possible sixth math extinction, this one the first brought about by human negligence. Our guest, Andrew Knoll, who's the Fisher Professor of Natural History and Professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Harvard University, is an international authority on how evolution responds to mass extinctions. Tonight, he explains how the geological record of past extinctions can help us understand the prospects for future life on Earth. Dr. Knoll is a member of the National Academy of Sciences and the Royal Society and the winner of numerous awards, including one of the most prestigious natural science awards, the International Prize for Biology, conferred in Tokyo in the presence of the Emperor and Empress of Japan. Dr. Knoll appeared on this program a few years ago to discuss his book on evolution, and he'll talk about his forthcoming book later in tonight's program. We're very honored to welcome Andrew Knoll. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Glad to be here. And we're delighted that you're going to give us this background because there is a bit of confusion around what we're enduring at this time and what the future holds for us. Could you start us with a, a little bit of the background about the previous extinctions since you've done so much on those? Okay. Well, it's interesting that until about 1980, there wasn't a lot of work on geological mass extinctions or interest in them. And then two things happened. One was Walter Alvarez, a geologist from Berkeley, found evidence of a meteor impact right at the point in the record where the dinosaurs disappear. Uh -huh. And that stoked a lot of interest in the phenomenon of mass extinction. And at the same time, on the same time scale at least, the late Jack Zepkoski went to the library and simply tabulated the first and last appearances of different taxa in the oceans through time. And what Jack found was that diversity initially goes up, then it collapses. Mm. Then it goes up and it collapses. And in fact, it has collapsed five times in the last 500 million years. And brought about by different causes, is that correct? Different Th that's things. right. Um, an asteroid here and <laughs> something yes, else the, there. <laughs> initially, people thought that this was going to be easy. Every time an asteroid hits, there's a mass <laughs> extinction. But in fact, there's only evidence that that happened once, and that was 66 million years ago when the dinosaurs and many other species disappeared. Um, the biggest mass extinction, which happened 252 million years ago, is I think at this point clearly known to have been caused by massive volcanism. That is volcanoes a million times larger than anything ever experienced by humans. And so yes, there's a variety of causes. Uh, each of them carries a certain type of selectivity in that 
the end Cretaceous extinction was harder on some groups than the end Permian one and vice versa. That's a, one of the most important points that you make is this evolutionary thing. So we tend to think of evolution as linear and that if it's going to fade, it'll come back in the same way. But you have made the point that the, a particular extinction may impact evolution, it's not only just species, but evolution itself a little differently. Is that correct? Oh, oh ab absolutely. You know, for 150 million years before the end Cretaceous impact, dinosaurs ruled terrestrial communities and, and most mammals were little shrew-like things that, you know, lived in forests at night. Mm -hmm. Once all the dinosaurs disappeared, they didn't come back. They were extinct. But within about 10 million years, all of the orders of mammals that we see today had evolved. So in some ways, mass extinction is a refresher and it gives new opportunities. On the other hand, we should take no comfort from that because mm -hmm. the time scale is millions of years. Okay. And in each case, there was this uh, an increase in diversity, it sounded like, or it seems like. Is that true from over time that, uh, I guess after the Permian, then you have this uh, of mammals start to evolve more and so on? Well, there, there's an overall increase in diversity. I always tell my students that at least at the beginning of the last century, there were probably more species on land and in the oceans than there had been at any other time in Earth history. But it isn't linear and it, it isn't simply a, a response to extinction. Um, uh -huh. One of the things that we found, and we've, we just published a paper on this recently, is that we can quantify the ecological impact of these extinctions. And commonly what will happen is the fabric of ecology breaks down because so many species disappear and then when it reassembles, it reassembles with different types of uh -huh. species, and they may or may not allow you to have more diversity than you did before. Okay. Uh, what I was thinking was that it seemed to be uh, a development for more sophisticated creatures. I don't know if that's a proper thing to say, you know, like us. Well, I mean, jellyfish <laughs> have done pretty right, well, I too. Have so be we, we don't want to. I don't certainly want to make it about us, <laughs> right, but right. there's no question that yeah. with the rise of mammals, of which our ancestors were part, that made the world a different place than it had been before. Okay. Then in the present situation, in the past extinctions, these are all brought about by natural forces, and I wonder if we can say the same, that you know, the prospects are the same for say evolution rebounding um, and uh, the, the having that resilience when this kind of an extinction in progress is brought about by man-made uh, factors that have poisoned the environment and so on. They don't break down in the same way. Yeah, there, there's, there's two aspects to that. And you're absolutely right that in each of the geologically induced mass extinctions in the past, diversity did recover, but it recovered on a time scale of millions of years. Yes. So if you're concerned about your great-grandchildren, extinction that is forever, right. that's right. Okay. The other thing is that, you know, it was a terrible day when a meteorite hit the Earth 66 million years ago. 
but the next day the earth began to heal. Mm -hmm. um, what we are doing now doesn't necessarily carry the promise of immediate healing that unless we change our ways. Yes, okay. So there's that factor. I'd like to come back sure. to, to that one uh, as well. In terms of evolution of just as being a process that uh, it has shown enormous resilience, um, at the rate of die-off right now, I'm thinking of the corals, I'm thinking in Australia, this massive die-off sure. of animals and so on, of organisms, of the insect loss and so on. You have pointed out, that I think, that it depends on what gets hit, you know, perhaps at different yeah. times, how well nature can respond. What do you think about this present situation? Well, it's interesting that what is happening in the 21st century has a distant mirror, and that is what happened 252 million years ago when massive volcanism spewed large amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. At that point, there was global warming. Yeah. The Earth got warmer. Because the Earth got warmer, the oceans are warmer. They can't carry as much oxygen, so oxygen was depleted in the oceans. And because so much of that CO2 got dissolved in seawater, pH went down, something mm -hmm, we mm -hmm. call ocean acidification. So if you read the newspaper, you'll find yeah, out that right now <laughs> right, we have familiar. global warming, ocean yeah. acidification, and oxygen loss from subsurface water masses mm -hmm. in the oceans. And one of the things that we did probably 20 years ago now, at a time when people had just started to identify geological correlates of extinction, um, very few people were trying to study the pattern of selectivity, what survived, what died. And, and so my friend Dick Bombach and I simply spent months in the library and looking at the physiological consequences of increased CO2. And we made sort of a, you know, a checklist of what kind of organisms should be tolerant and what kinds should yes. not be. And it turned out that was a very good description mm -hmm. of what actually happened. Predictive. And now in the 21st century, that pattern of extinction at the end of the Permian is proving to provide a pretty good roadmap for the vulnerabilities of populations, at least in the oceans today. Okay, that's in the oceans yes. and in the Permian. We didn't have us and a lot of other <laughs> things, right? right? Well, we, had, we didn't have six you know, billion it's, people it's, on it's the not, earth. And, <laughs> it's right. not really comforting to right. know that uh, what we're doing today is matched only by volcanism a million <laughs> right. times larger than anything yeah, we right. know. So. Right, right, right. No, that was really very interesting though, because you could, we were able to predict what might survive in an ocean yeah. environment. Um, in, I assume that you're taking this forward for like land as well. Yes. Uh, let me add another thing there. The, since we have a human factor now all right. over the, the planet, and one of the big problems is that with the rising sea level, places to live are disappearing right. while the population keeps increasing and so on. What is the effect of something like that? Do you have, can you squeeze that into that kind of model? In, in a sense you can, in that we have a good, really quantitative idea of the relationship between habitable area uh -huh. and how many species there are. Now, 
it has to be said that the kind of sea level change we're talking about over the next century, the direct effects of that on biological diversity will be small. The effects on Miami, Bangkok, Venice, right. Bangladesh are going to be catastrophic. Right. But I, I think in terms of overall diversity, sea level change is not our necessarily our biggest okay. problem. All right. Then let's take the life uh, uh, mm -hmm. for, for that then. The, if you lose the corals, that's so critical uh, and an ecological system just in general, I think, in right. the oceans, right? So many other creatures depend that's on right. that. If you lose that is there a kind of, uh, you know, a, a spill effect from that, that, uh, in other words, a whole bunch of other things go as a result of the loss of that, and did that come in your model as yeah. well? The, there's uh, an ecologist at the Harvard Forest in central Massachusetts named Aaron Ellison, and Aaron has talked about what he calls foundation species, things that we usually don't worry about in terms of extinction because they're common you know, the beech trees and oak trees mm -hmm, in the mm -hmm. forests in Massachusetts, or corals, but everything else in the ecosystem depends on the health right. of yeah. those species. So without question, since corals are vulnerable to a number of environmental uh, changes. And don't come back real fast, right? Well, no. this is an interesting thing. Oh, okay. We, we, uh, <laughs> I, I think we are in some danger of having catastrophic loss of coral mm -hmm, reefs. Mm -hmm. And as you pointed out, that will not only affect corals, but these are hot spots of biological right, diversity. Yeah, and yeah. many of the things that simply depend on the corals for the physical structure of their environment will be uh, in, in jeopardy. Has this uh, a, a continuing a, an impact so that you lose something basic? You pointed out that even yep. the trees, particular trees, that the ecology depends on this. It's kind of a root force. The corals are the same in the sea. When you lose that, it has this other effect uh, that you pointed Th that's out. That's right. Basic, yeah. These, these species structure the environment. Right. So it's not yeah. because they're eating something or right. depend on something right. else. The physical structure of the environment will change dramatically if those species are no longer okay. around. Okay. Okay. Is there a parallel back in these earlier times, uh, uh, extinctions that you uh, came up with, like in the Permian? Yeah. Yes, it varies from one extinction to another. So at, at the end of the Permian period, all reefs disappeared. Yeah. And there were essentially no animal-built reefs for several million years yes. thereafter. On the other hand, in the Permian, uh, most of the th changes that I, I mentioned with ocean acidification, loss of oxygen, right. are things that are peculiar to the oceans. Yes. So the, the effects on... Uh, life in the sea was devastating, perhaps not so devastating on land, whereas at the end of the Cretaceous period, uh, a majority of coral species survived and land, particularly land uh -huh. animals, were devastated. Okay. So it depends okay. on the nature. That was one of your nature, big yeah. points, and right. I'm glad to get that one straight. In terms, uh, so right now we seem to have both in the oceans and on land. So I uh, was curious about the loss of insects. We hear about the, the 
the bees, the honeybees, for instance, where we depend on these things to to uh, for, for pollinating, and the uh, a lot of other insects that are a base food for many other creatures. Is this similar to what has happened before, in, in the, where we have both sea and land species threatened? Yes, and it's it, it's distinct in the sense that and this will not make you feel any better about it, that most of the changes in the biota on land and sea that we read about are not the direct result of global change, at least up to mm -hmm, now. Mm -hmm. That is, there are very good censuses of vertebrate animals on land and populations seem to have dropped by about 60% mm -hmm. during my lifetime. Uh, you're but quite, not from climate change. No, because okay. of other things we do. We, we, okay. we hunt things, we exploit right, them, right, we right, uh, uh, spoil habitats, things them. like yes, that. Right, right. Um, many insect populations seem to have plummeted. Uh, there have been a loss of, I forget the exact figures, but about 25% of the living corals on the Great Barrier Reef. All of that was due to human influences but most of it was not a direct result of changing climate. Mm -hmm. Now the bad news is that we're continuing to influence natural populations in all the ways that we have done before, but now superimposed on that, the environment is changing at a, a geologically high rate. And so it's a, it's a double whammy. Okay. And I think we have to be doubly concerned about what we need to do to vouchsafe our diversity for our grandchildren. Right. Could you expand a little bit on that uh, kind of accelerated climate change thing? Because I think there's a great deal of confusion about that. People think, well, there are these little cycles and stuff. But geologists and biologists have pointed out, oh, this is a little faster than what is normal. Yes. That, that's an important point. Uh, I can find many times in geologic history when there was more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere okay. than we will contemplate in the 21st or 22nd century. I can find times when it was warmer than we contemplate in the 21st century. The difference is that organisms respond or don't respond mostly to the rate of change. Mm -hmm. And the rate of change in the environment, for example, the amount of carbon dioxide in the environment has increased by about a third since I was born. And that is not something that is characteristic of business as usual in the geologic record. We know that that has happened at several distinct moments in the geologic past, and they are almost always associated with a loss of biologic diversity. Uh -huh. Okay, all right which is the, brings us to the next thing then, does this suggest that evolution as a process is, is, cannot be resilient, quite resilient enough? That, you know, what are the parameters there for uh, it to respond adequately to yeah. something that is accelerated like this? Well, I think that there will still be organisms a million years yeah, from okay, now. Right. Uh, I think we have to think about the resiliency of, of individual species okay. or ecosystems. So yes, it, it is the case that what makes populations vulnerable to extinction is loss of population. Mm -hmm. And so from that perspective, we should be concerned for any number of plant and animal species. 
it's also the case that in some ways the, the landscape of evolution changes in a human world. There's a lot of evolution happening now um, because of our use, perhaps even overuse of antibiotics. Oh, gosh, there yes, are exactly. antibiotic resistant strains of yeah. any number of bacterial and protozoan disease vectors. Um, you know, cockroaches and rats are doing just yes, fine. Just, yeah. <laughs> so um, I've heard. <laughs> so some, some species benefit yes. from large and negligent human populations, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but many of those species that we wish to preserve, elephants, for example, yeah, right. bald eagles, um, population si sizes and geographic ranges have declined enough that I think many of these species need our help. Okay, all right. Then it's not so much evolution itself. Evolution keeps responding. Right. It is selective in terms of what can proceed, what can survive, is, is yeah. that the idea? So, so then uh, what survives may be quite different in the end than, uh, than we would expect right now. How about humans? Uh, well, I don't <laughs> should think, I ask? <laughs> I don't think the human population is in any danger of, of going extinct. There are, you know, again, when I was born, there were fewer than three billion humans on this planet. Now there's seven and a half billion. Yeah, I know, it's growing, growing all the time. So I, I think that humans will be abundant and, and uh, an important, uh, planetary force 200 years from now. What will change, however, if we choose to allow it to change, is our environment. I mm -hmm. mean, I, I find myself heartsick when I think that my grandchildren might never get to see a rhinoceros I know, or something this, like right. that. And part of that's aesthetic, you know, mm -hmm. and part of it goes back to the sense that for better or for worse, we are the stewards of the planet. Mm -hmm. And what will be here 200 years from now is going to be based on decisions that we make. So I, I can imagine that there's plenty of humans all over the planet, but living in a, in a world that is impoverished from the standpoint of the diversity of life, and that I think in many ways has aesthetic consequences, but also made more an environment that's made more vulnerable by having loss of the kind of diversity that makes ecosystems robust. Mm -hmm. So we put ourselves into an impoverished and therefore more vulnerable state of the earth system if we choose to ignore what's happening now. Okay, which is the next point. What do you think we should do in here? I bring this up because People feel like they would like to shut it all out. They are, you know, it's, it, it is very daunting, this bad news all the time. And people feel isolated and they don't know what to do. And what's your take on this? Well, you can't shut it out. Okay. Um, you know, a lot of climate models predict stronger hurricanes, yeah. uh, loss of rainfall in the Midwest where a lot of our crops are grown. So, you know, putting your head in the sand doesn't change anything at mm -hmm, all. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there, there are a number of things that we 
can choose to do, and I hope we will choose to do. Uh, one is the, the root cause of climate change, which we know for a fact, I should say, is predominantly the burning of fossil fuels. Yes. And there are various ways that that's been established with, without uh, any question. Um, now, the plain fact is that, you know, I drive my car to the, to the grocery store on Saturday. I fly in airplanes and that. And I think it, it's going to be difficult to simply stop doing those mm -hmm. things. But we can do them in, with engineering that uses less, you, know, you generate less CO2 for the act. So different kinds of cars, electric cars, hybrids are good. Uh, and airplane engines have become far more efficient over the last 20 years. So I think we can get more bang for our buck in the fossil fuels we do burn. At the same time, I think overwhelmingly we will go toward renewable fuels. And in part, that's going to be forced on us. I mean, the most optimistic predictions <laughs> for, coil, uh, for oil and gas suggest that you know, in the lifetime of your great-grandchildren, they better be using something else because yes. we're going to run out of those things and right. they'll become very much more expensive. There's plenty of coal, but, you know, as of 2019, coal is actually more expensive That's than right. many renewable yeah. fuels. Right, right. So we have an opportunity to step-by-step step change the way we do business, which is useful. Um, we do not as yet have effective engineering solutions to global change. Um, although I can imagine, I would almost predict, and I certainly hope, that within my children's lifetime, there will be reasonably inexpensive ways to actually scrub CO2 mm -hmm. from uh, air. Uh, that is, there's a lot of research going on in that. Uh, we're not there yet, but one could hope. So all the things that change the environment we can actually influence through the choices we, we make, both as individuals and as, as voters. And then at the same time, there are all these other things that we do. We exploit species. Yes. Uh, the reason that rhinoceroses are going extinct is not climate change, it's poaching. Yes. Yeah, and we can, we can choose to block international trade in rhinoceros horn or, or elephant ivory, things like that. Um, we can choose to um, guard against uh, pollution. Uh, there, there are all sorts of choices that we can make and I think have to be made for our own sake, you know, not only for the sake of rhinoceroses, but the sake of our, our own environment. And collectively, if we now, as individuals, as residents of Massachusetts, as Americans and as global citizens can get behind efforts to, to make the world a better place. I, I think we can, but it's high time we get going. There does come a point after which it will be very difficult to right. come back. I think that is one of the big problems is that you need governments to be doing this uh, at, at the end of the day. Right. And there has been a reluctance to really uh, do things, what, what has to be done. And there is still a lot of uh, power 
from the oil industry and so on in terms of determining how long we can drag our feet. But the, the, if people can be motivated to get out there and demand change, then that might be a good thing. And in addition, all the renewable energy creates a whole lot of jobs and just a healthier environment and everything. In, uh, in your view, are if we can move, say now, next 20 years, then uh, can we preserve life adequately on if we sort of rethink the way we produce meat, the way we, you know, the way we use our resources and so on? I think we can preserve much of the diversity okay. we have today. I think there are things that are consigned to extinction. Yeah. I'm happy to say. I, I did want to go back to the point yes. about governments. It's, it's easy to blame things on governments, but, you know, in this country, the people who are in power in government are people we voted for. Yeah. So if, if you don't like it, yeah. it's time to get out and vote. Yes. Yes. It's a, it's a very important thing. And to be an intelligent voter, yes. uh, another thing that is happening is a lot of appointments are being made that are damaging the science uh, agencies and so on that we do not have control over, but the, that if people made enough noise, then that might change. But you, absolutely, it's true that voters need to grow up and uh, do their, their proper thing. Dr. Noel, I would like in the last uh, few minutes to talk about your forthcoming book and also this fabulous award. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Should be a nova on that or something. Here. But we start with this book that is coming first, if we may. So once again, we have Life on a Young Planet, which is a wonderful book. But I understand you're undertaking something a little different in the new one, and we hope to have an event around that too. So, yeah, I'm writing a book in part for the reasons that we just discussed. Um, you know, every one of us is tethered to the earth by gravity. Uh, we're always in contact with the earth. We depend on the earth for almost every aspect of our livelihoods. And I think the average person in the street has very little understanding yes. of the planet okay. beneath our feet. And, and so the book that I'm writing is really an attempt to bring the story of the earth how it works, what its history is, to all people. Yes. Really, and not just STEM programs. <laughs> no, that's right. This, 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 I hope it's something that an intelligent high school student could could read with right, enjoyment and profit. Too. And I, at the end of the day, I think if the the final chapter in this book will take us from the past mm -hmm, into the mm -hmm, future, mm -hmm. and I I think we can only hope that people will, will act responsibly as citizens if they understand the earth and its vulnerabilities and its opportunities. And so that's, that's really the aim, to, to just sort of give people a sense of this wonderful planet we live on, has a four billion year history, we are the product of that history, 
and we will determine the next chapters in that history. Right, that's so great. And I hope it will bring about, as here in your work is very famous for uh, the, the integration of the geological, the chemical, the biological, that these things are absolutely interdependent and that I think we don't have a very good understanding of that in the public, that geology is over in that department and biology is over in this department and You're so right. on. You're right, it's the way we're taught. It's, it's, <laughs> exactly. It's, it's so we the don't science have of the 19th integrated. century yes. and integration is the science of the 21st century. Yes, yeah. but you see people moving in that direction Absolutely. evidently. Yeah. Certainly you're one of the leaders of that, but uh, I hope it will come out in this book a little bit too to make people understand that it, this stuff all goes together and that we have to appreciate it really yeah, differently. Hope, yeah. Yes, so we'll look forward to okay. that book Great. and the movie that goes with it <laughs> and so on and so on. I can't resist asking about this incredible award. Would you please tell us a, a little about that? So you've had loads of awards, but this must have been a wee bit different. What's the name of it and what happened? Okay, the award is the International Prize for Biology. It's one of those things that I don't think you would ever think about. Sometimes nice things just fall out of the sky. <laughs> and this is one it of surprised them. you? <laughs> uh, yes. Ah. Uh, and it is something that I, I think I was the 34th laureate uh, of, of this and some of the people I admire most like yes, Wilson just, were, yes. were previous winners and so it was just lovely A, to <laughs> receive this, this great hospitality from the Japanese people and this nice award just saying that you did okay. <laughs> it's a years. little more than okay. And, and uh, <laughs> the, the opportunity actually to meet and converse with the emperor and empress is not one that ever happened to this Pennsylvania Dutch boy before uh. and probably will not again. So yeah, it was just, it's just uh, something that happens once in your lifetime. Oh, yes, but not to everybody. No. So, you know. And I'm not sure, I don't know how many Americans have received the award either for that matter, but. It's about half, I think, really? of, of uh, that. Okay. Yeah, no, American science is yeah. pretty rich. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. But I think it must have been pretty swell to be yes, honored swell. in this fashion. It's <laughs> really true, a yeah. neat thing yeah. to be doing. And so uh, at we're coming to the end now. I just want to make sure that the, our viewers understand there's a forthcoming book. We'll keep you uh, posted on this. And we uh, talked to you that maybe we could have an event around this, uh, a public lecture or something like that, uh, to talk about that book when that one comes out. And you said that is uh, to be published in the winter? Th that's the hope. I, I'm about halfway through that's what all the drafting say. it. That's um, <laughs> I have, my summer's work is cut out for me, but uh -huh. I, my expectation is that I will have finished, you know, I, the text of the, of, of the book by the end of the year, which I always tend to think is the beginning of the end and publishers <laughs> tell you is the end of the beginning. But I, but I, I think in... Uh, 2020, I'm pretty sure. Ah, uh, okay. So. All right. So it's it, it, it is coming. Yeah, it's soon, coming along. Coming yeah. soon to a theater near you. It's so on. 
we wish you the very best and we appreciate uh, the enormous amount of work that you have done, but not only professionally, but in trying to bring this to the public as well. Again, I recommend this book. This is a wonderful read, and I'm sure the next one will be also. But uh, Dr. Knoll has done so much in terms of showing the importance between the type of the extinction and particular effects on life of selected, I should say, maybe uh, selected effects and how evolution works uh, in that manner. Thank you ever so much for your enormous contributions. My pleasure. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast of a Science for the Public event. Please check out our website, www.scienceforthepublic.org, for videos of all our events lists of upcoming events, our weekly Sci News Roundup newsletter, and timely science information.